Callaway's new Rogue ST drivers represent a breakthrough in driver performance. The Rogue ST drivers are Callaway's fastest, most stable drivers ever. Think speed, go Rogue with Callaway, the kings of distance. To find out which Rogue ST driver is right for you, visit callawaygolf.com.au. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing quest to find an answer to that unanswerable question, just what is it that draws people to this game? Rod Murray's my name and on this episode we're going to meet one of Australia's most successful yet lowest profile international golfers. Brendan Jones is a 15-time winner on the Japanese tour and a one-time winner on the secondary US tour. Yet he often jokes that his neighbours in Canberra have no idea who he is and must sometimes wonder what the bloke next door does for a living. And that is just how Jones likes it. He's not uncomfortable with celebrity, but he's got no interest in pursuing it. And as far as golf goes, well, he breaks a few conventions there as well. He doesn't love the game and he's happy to admit it. He has no desire to be the best player in the world or win all the majors. In fact, he didn't even miss golf when the COVID-19 pandemic forced a year off, a year he spent not practising, but working as a landscaper. Jones says he plays golf because he's good at it, and if you need proof of that, consider this. After that year of landscaping and playing no golf, Jones's first tournament back ended up with a playoff loss to Jared Felton at Bonnie Doon. In a world of cliches where players are constantly telling us about all the hard work they do and seeing how it pays off and being driven to be the best and wanting to have it all, Jones is a refreshing change. And I hope that that comes across in this chat. Well, Brendan Jones, it's a big thank you for joining us on The Thing About Golf. It's quite the commitment. We know that. We'll start at our our usual jumping off point. What's the thing about golf for Brendan Jones? You're asking me what the thing about golf is? Yes, I'm asking you what the thing about golf is, as though there is some thing about golf. Well, I don't know. That's an interesting question. What is, what is it about golf? Um, probably for me, the thing is I'm pretty good at it. Um, <laughs> you are? We'll talk about yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess so. I guess that's why we're talking here, are we? Partly, although... We tend to interview all sorts of people on this show, not just players. And we have an obsession with players and good players, and that's understandable, particularly for all of us, all of those of us who can't play barely at all. We're fascinated by those who can. But there are so many people who are hooked on the game from so many different walks of life. So I want to take you all the way back. Where did it start for you? What are your first memories of golf? Um, well, we are going back a fair way. I reckon I was uh, somewhere between five to ten, mate, most likely about seven. And I grew up in a place called Churros Head down the south coast of New South Wales and um, they're in the process of actually building a golf course and it was all um, all hands on deck and, you know, it started out as all voluntary sort of labour and uh, my old man sort of encouraged me to go out and help and pick up sticks and rocks and that type of thing. So probably that would be the earliest recollection for me um, and then once the golf course sort of took a little bit of shape, then we could get out and play on it and just tag along with the old man. So it wasn't just the golf I'm sensing. That would have been a real community-spirited thing. When a bunch of people get together to volunteer their time to pick up rocks off fairways to make the golf course more playable the next week, there's something more than just golf happening there, isn't there? Yeah, I guess so. But that's growing up in a small community, and that's mm. what people did. So, you know, it was for me as a kid, you know, I didn't know anything different. So. It was just uh, something to do on the weekend, you know. So um, my recollections are, you know, I've, I've seen photos of of me back then when, you know, when the course was in its infancy and, um, you know, it was exciting, I guess, something something new. Yeah, well, things were a long way from there to where you are now playing on the Japan Tour on golf courses that are extraordinarily manicured and whatnot. Just as a, a sort of a part of that, when did you first realise you said, the thing about golf, you're good at it. When did you realise you were good at it? How did that come? Oh, it was probably in the teenage years, um, maybe around about the 15, 16, when I was starting to get picked in state teams and and squads. And I think I, I played an under-18 Australian team. Um, so at that point, once you're, you know, you're being selected for these representative teams, then you've, you know, I, I thought that I possibly could, you know, go further in the game. And as it's turned out, it's uh, it seems to have 
paid off for me. Did you play other sports as a kid or was it always golf for you? No, no, no. I was playing everything. Um, you know, it was tennis, it was cricket, it was surf life-saving, um, you, you name it. I was sort of doing it. When you grow up in a small community like that, you know, that's what it is. It's a sporting, all your downtime is done by sports. And, you know, I got to a decent level at most of the sports that I picked up and, you know, I, I got to a, a pretty good level at tennis as well and it sort of got to the point that I had to choose one or the other and without making a really educated guess, you know, like I, I went with the golf probably because I was a little bit better at the golf and, uh, you know, looking back on it, if I had have chosen the tennis path and even if I was good, at it you know I would have been at least 10 years retired by now so um you know I think in hindsight I made the right decision to go with the golf you'd have been a good deal broker too unless you're one of the very very top players a lot less players making a living out of tennis there's a lot of more people making a living out of golf there's a more yeah that's right more sort of more sort of call for it do we see that anymore kids you play with a lot of young people because you and I are not young anymore Brendan I hate to break it to you you must play with a lot of young I realize that Rod thanks for bringing it up do we still see enough kids who've – I've heard Curry Webb talk about this, the tragedy of kids who've been single-minded, focused on golf from a young age and haven't played other sports, particularly team sports, and some of the things that you learned from that. Would you agree with that? And is it still possible to be a multi-sport kid and make it in golf? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I just think if you've got that hand-eye coordination, you've got that um, um, ability to play most sports, and I think – I think it's important to try a lot of different sports um, to get an understanding of, you know, what it takes to do different things. And, you know, you're never going to know what you really like unless you try a sort of diverse range of things to do, whether it be sports, whether it be music, you know, whether it be other things. Um, You know, you need to try and have experiences in these to then make an educated decision on, you know, what you'd like to do moving forward. Anything you feel like you learnt from playing those other sports as a kid, which has which has held you in good stead for your whole golf career? Um, no, one thing I do think that golf has has really helped me with is you seem to grow up a lot quicker. You know, you surround yourself with older people, and you know you you learn the respect and um, you know the integrity of the game um, by being taught by older people and constantly around older people. Um, so for me, I think that's what I take out of what I've learned from golf, um, more the respect and, you know, being polite and, um, you know, just learning to grow up a lot sooner than a lot of the similar age kids that aren't playing golf. Yeah. You mentioned getting picked for state squads and those sorts of things at the age of sort of 15. You went on to win the Australian Amateur. This is an impossible question to answer, I know, but you'll get the point of what I'm asking. As you stood there with that trophy that time, Looking ahead, what did you see for Brendan Jones? What were the movies that played in your head of what the career might unfold? And how's that compared to what's actually happened? I would imagine they're somewhat different. Yeah, they are, because you never really know. Um, You know, like I'd had a very um, successful amateur career and it seemed to culminate by winning the Australian Amateur in 99 and it just seemed to be the next progression for me would be to turn pro, but... You know, <clears throat> things happen very quickly and you turn pro and you just, you know, you've never had those experiences. Yes, I've played professional tournaments along the way, but, you know, all of a sudden when you don't have state associations sort of helping you out along the way, you, you're just thrown in by yourself and, you know, you are a complete rookie. Um, so there's a lot of learning and you've got to learn very quickly. Um, you know, you need to work out, what works best for you um you know it's a stressful a stressful thing to all of a sudden be out there by yourself um playing golf courses you don't know experiencing different things um you know it is it's a it's a big eye-opener that um what i thought when i'd won the australian amateur was you know i'd pretty much done everything in the amateur game now the next thing would be to go and try myself try um you know my hand at professional golf and um you know i've seen a lot of people that have had a lot of ability sort of try and never really take that next step so there's there's so much doubt as to whether or not you can actually do it and um you know i was lucky i had a 
fantastic golf coach behind me who just simplified everything for me, um, you know, told me exactly how it was. You know, when I when I won the Australian Amateur and was thinking about turning pro, you know, Alex Mercer, he, um, he says to me, look, mate, you're good, but you're not that good. So you need to go and, you know, learn the intricacies of the game. You need to go and learn how to win. You get out of your comfort zone, learn how to win, and then, you know, then you might want to, think about taking on the best in the world. But uh, the advice that he gave me was, you know, was the best that I could have possibly had. You know, he he pointed me in the direction of Japan and, um, you know, I'm very grateful that he did that. A couple of things happen, I guess, when you turn pro and you've got some ability, you win the Australian Amateur and all those sorts of things. As you say, you go from being a big fish in a little pond to a tiny little guppy in an ocean where nobody cares about you, don't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. From the start of the show to nothing overnight. <laughs> Once you're pro, no one cares about your amateur record. Uh, that's exactly right. So, um, yeah, you're just uh, another another person on tour that they're trying to beat. Yeah, what, what's the old saying in, in a field of professional golf? If you make seven on a hole, nobody cares except for the bunch of blokes who wish you'd made eight. <laughs> Which is, yeah, that's probably, that's true probably about on the money, isn't it? And Alex Mercer, the Mercers for, for listeners outside Australia, famous golfing family here in Australia. I think there were three brothers, the Mercers, weren't there? Alex, David, and... I believe so, yes. Yeah. Uh, Alex is a well-known coach, worked with Steve Elkins, and I think also for a long time. How did that relationship develop and how important is that? You're a particular sort of personality, Brendan, different to a lot of other golf pros that I know. Uh, I can't see you being fascinated with TrackMan and the numbers and studying the analytics and all that other stuff. You just play golf and try to get the ball in the hole. And there's no yeah. doubt some things to be said about that. The importance of Alex in that, developing that, working with that, because I imagine good coaches work with players who've got all sorts of different mindsets and he's probably been just as successful with players who want to know all of the numbers and all of the data. So talk about the relationship with Alex and the importance of that for young players especially. Yeah, well, look, I um, I first met Alex um, when I was a member at Maria Golf Club, uh, not far from Churros where I grew up. And Alex, he used to go around New South Wales at the time and do clinics um, for, you know, a lot of the members around the place. And Anyway, when he came to Maria, there was, I think, a few people pushing me forward saying, you know, we've got a good young player here, come and have a look at him. And anyway, Alex, uh, and at that point I was using the baseball grip and, you know, I was thinking, oh, I was going to be a Ted Ball and, you know, you know, no one's going to change my grip and I'm going to be really good. And anyway, um, he came down and had a look and the first thing he says was, all right, you need to change your grip. And, um, but, you know, and probably not long after that, then I was in the New South Wales squads and then I was flying to Sydney or driving to Sydney to go and see Alex. And the thing that is so great about him is that he's so simple with his teachings. You know, he's, he's old school. You know, there was very, very little video. Um, you know, he could just just watch me swing it, didn't need to see where the ball went, and he'd just tell, you know, he'd be able to work out what was going on and um for me that's what i needed i just needed simplicity i didn't want any confusing and you know i don't know anything about the golf swing but i know about my golf swing yeah. and that's um that's what i need to do it's a staggering truth for some good players i remember laura davies was once on a television show where i was sort of working behind the scenes writing a few scripts and i remember her Somebody asked her, you know, something about swing plane. And she just had this quizzical look on her face as if, well, what's a swing plane? I've got no idea what a swing plane is. And how do you hook it? Well, you just do that and then it hooks. That's it's, right. Uh, is there something yep. to that? You can get lost in the rabbit hole of data, track man, angles, paths, spin rates, all that sort of stuff, can't you? Have you ever dabbled in that? Um, only recently. And when I say recently, only six, eight weeks ago. And that was when. That's extraordinary, um, Brent. You know, when. <laughs> That's I was extraordinary. Being, yeah, when I was being set up for a new set of clubs. And, um, you know, that was pretty much the only time. Like, I have been on TrackMan before, but I've never been that interested. Um, but, look, it is, it's, a great, um, it's a great thing for a lot of people. But, um, you know, for me, I like to see a certain ball flight, which might not, um, you know, it might not sort of, look like the right numbers on track man but that's the way i play you know and that's what alex has always said you know why do you want to be the same as other people you know you need to the differentiate the things that differentiate you are the little differences that you have and um you know like i've never also had the ambition to be number one in the world you know like i if i could make a career out of the game then i'd be very very happy with that you know yes i wanted to i'd 
thought I could be a top 20 player in the world. Um, but uh, I didn't quite get that that high up in the in the rankings. But, um, you know, for many, many years I've been in the top 100 in the world and, you know, I was very happy with that. And my little piece in, in the golfing atmosphere, I was quite happy to, you know, just trundle along like I was. Let's not pretend like you're done yet either, Brett. <laughs> you, you, well, you stepped out of two years of landscaping and Danny won a tournament in Sydney having not swung a club for nearly two years, but we'll come back to some of that. You're talking about b- being comfortable in the way you play. I often feel the same way about golf clubs, and you would understand what I mean here. You can pick up the world's best driver that statistically is the best of everything. If you don't like the look of it when you look down, you can't hit it, can you? It's just not, it's not no, going to happen, is it? That's true. <laughs> it's it's that's that simple, true. You know, isn't it? It's you've a- got to be happy with what you're looking at. And um, for me, that's something that over my career, I very rarely change clubs. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the new clubs that I'm offered need to be exceptional for me to want to change. And, um, you know, you've just got to find something that works for you. And, um, you know, until something comes along that, that makes things better, then... You know, you go what with works. Yeah. And yeah, for me, I've always been simple. You know, I don't know anything about shafts. Um, I, I just hit shots and I tell the guys that are fitting me, I say, that's the shot that I want. Um, you know, if it's going too far left, you know, I don't like that and I'll go and find something for me. So, you know, that's what they're good at. And, um, you know, they should be able to go and find something for me. Yeah, indeed. The motivation to be a, the, the very best player in the world, we we read this stuff, we revere these sorts of things, do we? Do we overplay sometimes the role of ambition? You'll often read, hard work does pay off. That's actually not true for everybody, is it, necessarily? It's only one part of, you said yourself, lots of talented players don't make it. It's only one part of the equation, isn't it? Yeah, I think people need to have realistic goals. Um, you know, and I always thought to be the best, the best in the world, you know, the chances of that happening are very, very, very minimal. Um, but also I was somebody else that, you know, I I never fit the mould of someone that just was a grinder, that just would go and practice, you know, hour after hour. And that's another thing that Alex said, you know, there's no point going and spending hours and hours and hours on the driving range. You just have to go to the range, work on something, um, and then go away and play, you know, because you just standing for hours and hours on a range you get tired and when you get tired your form changes so um you know i've always done things in little little bits and um you know and that's pretty much worked for me um you know over my career you'll see that most of my wins have been early in the season when i've just had time away from golf and i come back and i'm fresh um, you know, because whether you know, golfers aren't that smart. So you finish the year, you forget all the bad stuff, and then you come back the next year, and you know the game's fresh and new again. And uh, that's pretty much how I've looked at it. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, you all stepped to the first tee expecting to play well for some reason. You could never make yeah, the case right. in court, right. but we somehow do it. On the world number one thing and that sort of uh, ambition, I remember Mark Leishman said to me once, he, he, he said he'd been up close to Jason Day when he was the world number one at barbecues and social events. And he said, you know, and he'd watch Jason and he'd say no to a second beer. And Leishman said to me, I'm not that guy. Mm. I like to have that second beer. There's a real balance, isn't it? There? there really is sacrifice. You would have seen up close some of the very best players in the world. Their life is very different, isn't it? They don't get... Oh, it is. They get all the money, but they don't get to enjoy the things we do in so many ways because they're driven by this need to continue to succeed. Yeah, yeah there's, there's differences, of course. You know, people are driven by different things. And, you know, I know and I understand that to be in the top 20 or top 50 in the world to then the top 20, the top 10, you know, to be the best, you know, you've got to sacrifice so many things, um, you know, but... To do that, these people are willing to do that. And, um, you know, I take my hat off to to, to those that have succeeded and, and been to the pinnacle of the game and, you know, whether it be the top ten in the world or the or number one in the world, you know, it does take dedication and, um, you know, I'd certainly take my hat off to them. But, you know, there are guys like myself and, and Mark Leishman, you know, like everyone that knows Mark knows he's a knockabout bloke and he they know that he's got the game and you know he can win majors um but i just think he's found that right balance in his life too you know his family's important he's he's got his place there back home where he's got his own golf course and he's 
place. You know, he's happy. He seems happy. So, you know, everyone's different and, uh, you know, the world's made up by different people and, um, you know, we can't all be the same. No. So, Happiness might be the key, mightn't it, Brendan, that if you're happy, your golf has to be better. If you're spending hours on the range and it's not something you enjoy, there can't possibly be a net positive outcome of that, can there? Unless yeah, you very true. VJ Singh loves the range. It's his happy place. That works for him. Yeah. If he didn't spend time at the range, his golf would probably suffer. So it's different horses for different courses. Just to date this a little bit, I'll quickly get your thoughts on this. You can't let this go. We're doing this Masters week. We're not 100% sure, but it looks 99% certain that Tiger's going to tee up this week, which is quite extraordinary. Your thoughts on him? You've grown up playing in the Tiger era, well and truly. The 99, 99 Australian Amateur was two years after he won his first Masters. Some thoughts on him and what you've seen the impact of him to the game and then maybe just the possibility of him actually playing this week at the Masters, which is staggering. Yeah, look, I um, I got into golf because of Greg Norman. Mm-hmm. You know, Greg Norman, he was the man when I was young and, you know, he was the guy that we, us Aussies, wanted to emulate. Um but as you said, you know, like I'm the same age as Tiger and I've played my whole career with Tiger there and watching him on TV and doing things that we couldn't even imagine doing. Um, but at the same time, you know, Tiger has brought money and he's into the sport and, you know, along the way prize money has increased and, you know, I've been a beneficiary of that. Um you know, but yes, I play in Japan and Japan's been always playing for good money. But, you know, like I've played world golf championships and majors and played with Tiger or against Tiger in match play. And, you know, just to, to watch someone that is that professional and that good and that, you know, have watching someone with an awe about them that you just can't stop watching them. Um, you know, that's what Tiger is you know tiger's just you know as big as greg was tiger's just taken that to the next level yeah yeah um yeah and so one of his keys to success isn't it other players even the very hard to impress a tour pro tour pros don't stop and watch anybody hit golf balls or do anything Mm. on the golf course they do what they do tiger's maybe that exception in this generation isn't he 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 built such an aura about himself that other i remember jeff ogilvy said to me once the key to playing against tiger is to not watch him don't yeah, be well, distracted true. by watching him because you're... That's true. You know, like if you go to the range and you're trying to work on something and then Tiger comes and hits balls on the range as well, you're not <laughs> you're not sort of practising what you went there to do because yeah. all you're thinking is, well, Tiger's, yeah. you know, five days away and I have to watch Tiger and then you're there <laughs> thinking, why am I here? Um, <laughs> you know, I forgot what I was meant to be doing. But, you know, that was Tiger, you know, Greg... Back in the day, wherever he went, people watched, and it's the same with with Tiger. But Tiger was just taking that, you know, as I said, to the next level. He is, um, you know, he's the greatest of my generation and possibly ever. You know, Jack was a little bit before my time, and um, you know, I didn't get to see Jack play an awful lot. But you know, they're the two I would say that has transcended the game of golf. Yeah. Well, Nicholas has got the record, hasn't he? But I think most people will agree Tiger's played the sort of golf we've never seen from anybody. He's, he's Yeah, exactly. And I just think there's probably a few more players around when Tiger was here that uh, – well, when Tiger was at his peak that, um, you know, the Ernies and the VJs and, you know, there's a lot of really, really good players. So the depth was a little bit stronger, I guess. But, you know, not taking nothing away from Jack, you can only beat who you're playing against yeah. and – and he did that. Yeah, indeed. Just quickly back on Norman, last little rabbit hole we'll go down and we'll come back to sort of your career and what's unfolded. Since you told me once after you won the 99 Amateur, you got an invite to the Australian Masters. You played a practice round with Greg Norman, which made an impact on you, I'm guessing, still with you today. Tell people what happened that day. Yeah, well, it was an interesting thing. Like, I, I was quite happy just to be playing in the Masters and uh, I was having a practice round with Matthew E. Cobb and Ken Druce and we just teed off the first hole and um, around the side of the clubhouse, Greg Norman came and, um, and you know, I was just watching him and then he, he asked, asked the three of us if he'd mind if we if he joined us for the round. What and face I, did you pull? <laughs> I don't think I could talk, but I think maybe Matty said, yeah, fine, let's, let's go, that type of thing. And anyway, so I was just going to go and play, you know, a easy little practice round with, Matt and Kenny, and next minute I'm playing with Greg Norman. So, 
um, you know, that was just a, an incredible moment. But um, And then he didn't play very well the first nine holes, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, he'll, he'll only play nine and then he'll go to the range and work on a few things. Anyway, he played the whole 18. And then on the last green, he, he got us together in a, in a circle and just had a word to us about certain things. And he said that, you know, everybody playing this week is a good player. And he said those that are going to be there at the business end this week are the ones that believe in themselves and believe their own ability. And that was the year that Craig Spence hit a five iron on the last hole to a foot to beat Craig by a shot. And anyway, it just resonated with me. And I think a week or two later, I was playing the Tasmania Open. And I just, all I could think of was, you know, having that self-belief. And anyway, I went and won the Tasmanian Open. And uh, and I only I put that down to just thinking a little bit differently, just hearing those words come out of Greg's mouth just made you realise, you know, like my dad could have told me exactly the same thing and I would have said, oh, dad, whatever, you don't know anything. But coming at it, which, you know, I shouldn't say that to my dad, dad, I love you and all. Um, But but coming out of Greg's mouth, it just, it hit home. And, um, you know, it's something that I still remember to this day. Such a simple well, message, isn't it? It, it? As you say, it's a, such a simple message and it makes so much sense, but where it comes from. Because you're a dad yourself, Brendan, and you know as well as I do that your kids think the same thing about everything that comes out of your mouth. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> no, true. They'd have true, to hear true. it from somebody else. Uh, Greg's got his critics, much of it warranted, and particularly lately, I suspect, but he didn't have to do that, did he? Do you take lessons from that? And I, I don't know how much you get asked, but are young players interested in being mentored and and picking the brain of someone like yourself who's been at it for the best part of 25 years uh, and what they can learn from you? Chuck Fowler's another one who's always been extremely generous with his time. He told me recently he really yeah. gets asked these days by young players anything about some of the off-course stuff and ways to handle a career. So talk a little bit about that and the importance of that and what Greg did that day. I think he's done for a lot of Australians. He's, he's upset a lot of Australian players over the years too, but he doesn't have to do that. And then the important thing, as you said, 25 years later, it still sticks in your mind. Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, I'm the same that, you know, all the young kids that are coming up now that, are, you know, that ask me anything, you know, I just say, yep, well, you know, there are other options as opposed to going straight to the PGA Tour. You know, that's what everyone wants to do. And, um, you know, I... I don't um, discredit any of them, and um, but to get there, you've got to you've got to learn a lot of things, and you know, getting advice from those senior players um, is something that um, you know I think is very important for for young players. You know, you've got you've got to learn, you've got to experience different things, and um, you take what you want out of everything that you hear. Um, and I just think you know something, just one line from someone might be something that Resonance. might be that little thing that you need to get you to that next level. Everybody else around a young player and involved in a young player's group, which is not to say their motives are nefarious, but they've all got an agenda, isn't it? They all want something. Other players don't. It's a it's it's unbiased advice in many ways, isn't it? Yeah, there, that's exactly right. There, there's no that's, you're not looking for something from the young player. You've been asked to give and you give something. So it comes yeah, a little bit yeah. differently, is it, to what a manager or parents or siblings or other halves or whatever might uh, might think. What are some of those things, Brendan? It's I'd just say that you know you don't be um, afraid to try different things. You know, like um, don't you don't have to listen to everyone. You know if do things your own way. Um, you've got to find something that works for you. Um, you know, like I, <clears throat> I've had access to sports psychologists, nutritionists, all these types of things. Now, for me, sports psychologists, unless that person talking to me has been to a high level in a certain field, whether it be business, whether it be sport, you know, like I find it hard to listen to a sports psychologist tell me how I should be feeling and what I should be doing if they've never experienced that type of thing, you know. But some people will just go to a sports psychologist and say, you know, I just need that help and they're willing to to listen to that. So, you know, I would say get the advice from all, you know, all the professionals and then take Take out what you want from each and every one of them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's like a nutritionist, you know, through a golf week. For me, I enjoy having a beer or two every night. You know, it's, that's what 
works for me, it relaxes me. You know, I've, I don't go doing more than that. But, you know, a nutritionist might say, well, you know, you can do it a couple of times a week. But you've just got to work out what, what works for you. And um, for anyone coming through, I would just say listen to the experts and then take out what you want from that. Adapt it to what works for you. Don't just assume yeah, that everything's right. 100%. That's right. There's no might about what that nutritionist might say, BJ, and you know it deep down. <laughs> that nutritionist yeah. is never going to tell you it's okay to have two beers a day because uh, yeah. that's kind of their their job. Can you recall – I suppose the Norman thing is one example. What Can you recall things that have resonated with you that people have told you over the years? How have you come to this position where that's the advice you'd give? Have you taken advice no, that you I, wish I, you hadn't I, or – no, I just go back to Alex Mercer, you know, like he's been the one person in my whole career that I've pretty much listened to everything that he said because he's just so simple in what he says. Um, and, you know, he's he is old school. There's none of the new, you, you, the new stuff, you know, like the exercising, the training, the eating and, you know, it's like whatever works for you, you know, You've got to understand your golf swing. And if you understand your golf swing and you know what you're doing, then the game itself shouldn't be that difficult. You know, when you think about it, the game's not hard. You've got a white ball here. You've got a hole up there. Yep. You've got to get that from here to there. doesn't matter what your swing looks like, but you've just got to know how you're going to get it there in the least amount of shots. Yeah. And, you know, from from that line that Greg Norman said and and Alex Mercer, who I just think is a wonderful, wise person, um, you know, that's been my whole, you know, thought process on, on golf. Callaway's new and improved Chrome Soft family of golf balls is better for everyone. From amateurs to major winners like John Rahm, Phil Mickelson and Annika Sorenstam. Now with Callaway's proprietary new precision technology, the Chrome Soft family delivers Callaway's highest quality, best performing and most consistent golf balls. To learn more about Precision Technology and the new and improved Chrome Soft, Chrome Soft X and Chrome Soft XLS, visit callawaygolf.com.au. You started the story about Alex by telling us that he told you you're good but you're not that good. How important is yeah. that? We've got a whole generation of young people, I feel, that all we do is tell them how, tell good, them they how are. good they are. How important yeah. is it to have somebody at least in the background telling you, hey, you still put your pants on one leg at a time, buddy, don't try that around here? Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 something that needs to be told, you know. Like there's there's too many yes people hanging around a lot of people. And, you know, I'm playing Japanese tour up here. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I just see it all the time with these, with the good Japanese players, you know. They've got so many hanger-oners and, um you know, just all constantly being told how how wonderful they are, um, and they're just not winning week after week. So, you know, you've got to have that realism, and um, people, you know, you just need to have that people around you that are going to knock you down, especially with the Aussies. Um, you know, you don't want to get too big for your boots because you know you are going to um, be told, and that's what you need. You need some people around you that are going to just let you not get too far ahead of yourself and just tell you, okay, yep, you are good, but you can still improve. <laughs> Family's important for that, isn't it? I think probably particularly kids because up to a certain age they don't know or care, do they? Anything yeah, well, my kids, off. my boys still don't really know what I'm doing. They know how <laughs> I play golf, but their interest level's pretty low. What? One can imagine at school someone's that saying, hey, my dad plays a bit of golf, and New York is going, yeah, my dad plays a bit of golf too. <laughs> Does your dad yeah. go to Japan yeah. for three and four weeks at a time? No, he just plays on a Saturday. Oh, right. I didn't <laughs> yeah. realise. You're a homebody, aren't you? Is that part of the appeal of Japan? <clears throat> yeah, look, I think the older I've become, um, you know, I've got that life balance more worked out. Um, you know, I'm getting back to the last two years with um, with me not playing any golf, you know, I just think, it made me realise that most golfers that play professionally are always worried about losing their status and losing, you know, their job as as such. Um, well, you know, pretty much I've felt like I'd lost my job for the last couple of years. And you know what? The first year I was sitting around not really, you know, knowing what was happening. And then the second year I sort of said, well, I'm not going to sit around doing that again, you know. Yes, my sort of job has been taken away from me. Well, I've got to find something else to do, and and it just 
put things into perspective for me that, you know, when golf finishes, there are other things to do and um, not to be worried about that. What did you do and how much reflection did you have the opportunity for? I felt at the start of the pandemic, and we didn't know how long it was going to go, but a break like that was going to be really, really bad for a lot of golfers, would make life very different, but it was actually probably going to be quite a positive for some. And you might be one of those who could have been in that some. What sort of reflection did you do over those two years? And does it has it changed your relationship with golf? Because the kid at Churros Head who hits his first one out of the middle and falls in love with the game is not the Brendan Jones that's trudging the fairways of the Japan Tour when things aren't going great and you've missed two cuts and you're worried about your card and all those other mm. You've got a very different relationship with golf in those two situations, don't you? Did that time away change the relationship with the game for you, do you think, in any way? Look, I think it came at a perfect time for me. Um, you know, like I'm someone that I'm not in love with golf. I don't love golf. I like to get away from it. I like to not play the game. And, you know, at the, at the end of every year in December when the tour finishes here, I like to have a couple of months off. And so for me, it was just an extended time off. Um, but then it got to the point that, you know, well, this extended time is just continually extending. And, and you know, just having that uncertainty about when I would be playing again, I, I, I wanted to stop worrying about that. And then I thought, well, you know, Go and do something. Tell and, people what you did. And what I did. Tell people what you actually did. They'll find it staggering. Oh, well, I just spent a year landscaping. Um, I just had a friend who just started up a business, a landscaping business back home, and and um, I played a bit of golf with him. I just said, oh, look, mate, if you've got anything going around, I'd love to do something. And anyway, first day I went and I was probably hedging for about six hours and I was a broken man by the end of it. But What do you mean, cutting, um, cutting a hedge, making it nice and straight? Yeah, trimming like- hedges and things like that. And, you know, by the end of, well, that was February 20, no, 2021, yeah. sorry. Um, and then I finished up in February this year and then went and played TPS Sydney. But, look, it was, for me, I used to love the gardening um, you know, that was my relaxation time when I was at home. And, and um, you know, this was it's gardening, but it's other stuff. It's irrigation. It's, it's um, you know, things that I didn't know how to do, which now I know how to do. Um, and it was something that I really enjoyed. And, and I, I, I liked that feeling of having a real job. Um, to me, it felt like a real job. Oh, it's a real job. No fear about that. <laughs> what I've done for a living for the last 20 years doesn't really feel like a real job to um, to a lot of people. So, you know, I did enjoy that. I enjoyed, you know, going home to my own bed day after day, which I'd never, I hadn't done for 20 odd years. Um, but, you know, I look, I enjoyed the time away from golf. I didn't miss golf. Um, you know, I don't didn't watch golf, um, didn't read about golf, and I just had you know it just it's been a real freshening couple of years for me, and um, you know, and towards the end of last year, then I started to play golf sort of once every month, and then you know in the new year I was playing twice a week, <coughs> um, and I just sort of was feeling that I'd be back in getting back in the swing of it. And then I wanted to use TPS Sydney and the New South Wales Open just to see where my game was at leading back into Japan. And, um, you know, it didn't feel like I'd been away for two years at all. That's quite extraordinary. So just to clarify, so you were doing sort of five days or five and a half days a week. It'd be a fair bit of lifting, building, retaining walls, moving rocks and rubbish. Yeah, um, I was doing somewhere between 30 to 40 hours a week. And, um, you know, I was absolutely wrecked every day I'd get home. But, you know, I, I enjoyed that. Um, I hadn't, haven't been to the gym now for probably 15 months. <laughs> I guess I'd get home to. and I'd be so exhausted <laughs> that I wouldn't want to go. Um, but you've had a workout but, anyway, haven't you? It's a different sort yeah. of workout. But working physically with your hands all day every day and with your body is, yeah. a, is a very yeah. much a positive workout, isn't it? That'll, yeah. that'll keep you in And, look, my body has felt better than it ever has the last two years and then when I started to play golf again then I my back issues were flaring up you know my muscles were getting tight just the twisting and the turning that you know I hadn't been doing for a couple of years but um you know now I've played my first tournament back here in Japan now and you know I'm back to stretching and 
getting into those routines again. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this year. I'm, I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling fresh. Um, I know that my game's still good. Uh, still a bit of fine tuning to do. And, um, you know, so I'll, yeah, I'm confident that, um, I'll be back competing again very soon. So no golf at all for the bulk of that year? You said you played once a month towards the end of the year. Did you play any golf at all while you were doing the landscaping? Or? Oh, there were times that I wouldn't have played for six months. Wow. The Bruce yeah. Litsky of Australian golf. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like you just get caught up in life. Um, you know, I've, I, uh, I've had my boys week on, week off, and, you know, when I have the boys, it's 100% into them. And then you, I'm working the other week. So, you know, I'm just exhausted for two years. So now I, I almost feel that I'm on holidays now because, <laughs> you know, I get Mondays, Tuesdays off. And then now I'm, you know, play golf on Wednesday and hopefully play golf Thursday through Sunday. Hey, Thursday, yeah, that's right. You know you're playing at yeah. least two days every week. But <laughs> four, yeah. four would be even. You want to be a bit careful. That's what all of us recreational golfers think that professional golf is a holiday, don't we? You would have come across this in practice. Well, you, you do, but you just don't really understand no, that's what exactly. goes on behind the scenes. That's exactly right. The golf course, once you've turned professional in many ways, becomes the sanctuary, doesn't it? All the other stuff that is professional golf, the worrying about the cards, the tournament invitations, the scheduling, the travel, it doesn't matter who you are, how much money you've got almost. Travel is always an issue, isn't it? There's always a bag lost somewhere. It's gone to the wrong place. Sometimes it's got your golf clubs in it. Hotels aren't ready when you arrive. All of that stuff is fun when you're on a holiday, isn't it? What's it like to live week to week like that? Um, oh, look, it's not the worst thing in the world, is it? Um, <coughs> yeah, it's – it's um, look, it, it's fun. It is fun most of the time. You know, when we do get on the golf course, that's what we're best at. So all the stuff um, away from golf is stuff that you don't really have – control over but once you get to the golf course that's what you do have your control over so um you know as you said that's the our safe place or you know that's the place where we feel most comfortable is on the golf course so yeah you know there's a lot that goes on as you said the lost bags the travel you know um you know not getting lost and things like that so you know but it is it's a it's a when you're playing well I don't think there's too many no. jobs in the world that are that are better than this. Let's talk about that. 15 wins on the Japan Tour. You could walk down the street in Canberra, Sydney, and you do. I'm sure most people wouldn't know who you are. I imagine you're more recognised in Japan in many ways than you are here at home in Australia. Talk a little bit about that and the, the other things that come with it. This sort of thing, you've got to do podcasting. I imagine I know early in your career in Japan, you were one of the longer hitters, so you're constantly having to do articles in magazines and talk about that. You were sort of quite the legend. Talk about that whole side of golf. And I imagine the joy of, for somebody who's a bit of a homebody, being a star in Japan and an unknown at home. Yeah, look, I'm pretty anonymous everywhere I go, to be <laughs> honest. Even up even up in Japan, um, you know, unless there's a golf tournament around and you, you know that there's a lot of um, people that love golf, um, you know, I can, I can go everywhere. People... You know, I don't think I get recognised all that often. Um, but, you know, I'm just, I feel like a normal person everywhere I go, which, you know, I really like. Um, you know, but when I do get recognised up here and, you know, might get asked for a photo or autograph, you know, that's nice too. But, um, you know, like up here, the people are very respectful. Um, they leave you alone most of the time. So, uh, and when I get home, no one's, you know, I'm just a normal person. So, there's nothing different about me. I'm just I play play golf quite well, um, and I've had you know a bit of success up here. But really, I'm no different to anyone else. I can I can vouch for that. I think you're still the only professional golfer who's ever bought me a beer. So there you go. And I still remember that Royal Pines all, all right. those years ago. You put your hand <laughs> in your pocket and bought a beer. So not that I've drunk with a whole lot of professional golfers. So it's a fairly small field. Winning golf tournaments uh, and the game itself. Talk a bit about that. I remember um, Marcus Fraser, I asked him, what's it like to be in contention in a golf tournament, that back nine? And I think he described it as like walking along a high wire. 
you're just in this heightened state of kind of reality. What's been your experience with those? I think you've, you've won 15 times, and I'm sure that there's been plenty of times you thought you should have won and you didn't get across the line. Talk about that. What's that like, that, that, that bubble? And is there any way to know without actually being in it? <laughs> well, look, I think it's almost easier being in contention to win a tournament than it is grinding it out on a Friday afternoon to make a cut. Because the big difference there is that when you're trying to grind to make a cut, your game is not 100%. But when you are... It's a negative experience. You, you... Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. And then once you're in, in contention to win tournaments, you know your game's good and you know that you, your confidence level is quite high. So for me, um, that's what I take out of it. Whenever I'm in contention, I know that my game's good and, you know, I can execute what I'm trying to do more often than not. Now, there are times that, you know, you, you do everything you should to win a tournament and it doesn't happen. You know, there's been multiple times where I think I, I should have won a tournament and I haven't done that. But there's been other times that I've won tournaments that I didn't feel that I should have won. So, you know, but but for me, when I am in contention, I just feel that I'm going to win because my game's good, I'm in control, um, and that's the, the, the thought process that I have. Whereas, you know, I seem to get more nervous when I'm trying to make a cut on a Friday afternoon. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. When your game's good, you, your confidence is high. When you're not quite on, then all the doubts sort of start to creep in. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. What's it like having like a 54-hole lead? What's the day before the golf gets underway on Sunday? Let's say you're you one in front or you're tied for the lead through 50 holes. You're playing in the final group Sunday afternoon. There's a lot of time ticks over there. <laughs> Must feel like an eternity before you get to the first tee Sunday. I know you've told me before that you wish you didn't, but you can have negative thoughts in those situations. And how do you deal yeah. with all of that? What's that situation like? Oh, look, it's tiring. It's very tiring. Um, mentally, you lie, you lie awake at night playing the golf course over and over and over. And, you know, the certain on most golf courses you play, there might be one tee shot that, you, that worries you and you'll just go, oh, how am I going to get through that tee shot the next day? Um, but these are all thoughts that I think most people would have um you know if you can lie if you can go to sleep and get your eight hours before a, you know, a final round when you're leading then you're you know <laughs> you're pretty amazing yes. to be able to do that um but yeah you just your mind races you know you, you're just thinking of all the possibilities that could happen um but yeah you just you try and get your three or four hours if you can, and um, the adrenaline sort of keeps you going. I think that's I think that's what it is. You know, like I'm sure other people will be different, but I think for a big percentage of people they would, you know, their sleeping pattern goes out the, out the yeah. door um, and you just, all you're doing is just thinking about how you're going to be playing that round of golf the next day. And then what you don't realise is that that hole that I was lying awake you know, worrying about for three hours the night before, you get there and you just stand up and hit it. So because <laughs> you're playing well, <laughs> it's, it always seems worse when you're laying in bed than it does when you actually get there. As an old saying, we spend an awful lot of our wa lives worrying about things that haven't happened yet. <laughs> that's, that's true, right. isn't it? That's yeah. Uh, yeah. that's uh, that's very true. And the day itself, does it take an eternity to get to your tea time when you've got an afternoon tea time on a Sunday? Um, well, in Japan, it's all different because we're the last group's teeing off here at about 10 o'clock. Oh, nice. <clears throat> yeah, so, um, yeah, most of the time um, the tournaments are done by 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Why is so, that? Why? Is that? why? Um, I think it's more for TV because they put a package together. They don't do a live right. telecast a lot of the time, so it's a taped Ah. So taped, and then from four to six, they might be able to put a package together of the golf. Wow! Um, but you know, that's it's great. I like the fact that there's no sitting around in the mornings. Um, you wake up, you have your breakfast, and then it doesn't matter if you're first off the tee or last off the tee. There's, you know, you're done by done by three. It's sort of two. 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Get out into the garden. Fantastic. Uh, you mentioned it a couple of times, the TPS event in Sydney. 
Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of things about this. The first one being, were you surprised at your own performance? I think it was your very first tournament back after a year of landscaping, essentially. Yeah. And you ended up in a playoff. We know that the last round got essentially cancelled. You played, I think, four holes when they called play because of a storm. Then you went into a playoff with Jared Felton, who hit just a remarkable gun. Not much you could have done about that, I wouldn't have thought, the shot mm. that he hit in the play. But were you surprised to find yourself there? Oh, yes and no. Um, it was funny because all the all my rounds that I'd had all my, and they weren't, they were just playing with my mates. But every round that I'd played leading into that, I was shooting some really crazy numbers. And so, like, I, by doing that away from professional golf, um, it does give you some sort of confidence. But at the same time, I wasn't sure if that was going to transcend into the real competitive golf. And, um, you know, I hadn't played Bonnie Doon since the new layout had been put together. I think it was sort of uh, mid to late 90s that I'd played it. And so I had no thoughts about the golf course and I turned up and I liked what I saw. And, um, you know, I think the course being wet helped because it was you'd pick your number and you'd hit the numbers. Um, But, you know, I knew that I felt that my game was good, but, but turning up and... Putting that into a torn into tournament conditions, I wasn't sure of. But um, you know, the longer the week went, the more confident that I got. And it didn't, as I said earlier, I didn't feel that I'd been away for two years. It, you know, because it's I've been so conditioned to be doing this type of thing for the last twenty years that having two years off and and I just being in a happy headspace, it just didn't feel as stressful as I remembered it to be. Yeah. Somewhat like riding um, a bike, I guess, Brendan, like riding a bike. You kind of don't forget, do you? You get on the bike four years later and it's like you kind of never got off. There's a few bits and pieces. That's right. But, um, you know, like I I still laugh at it to think that I played no golf and then almost one hole off winning a tournament. You know, that just seems a bit crazy. Um, But it was good for me. You know, there's still – Getting into that playoff, it still had the competitive juices flowing, and I was excited again, and and it was fun and things that I'd you know forgotten about for a couple of years sort of came back to me, and you know I'm I'm excited to be playing golf again. Um, you know I I still don't love the game, right. but I, I I enjoy it, and it's and it's good to see people that I've you know that I've known for many years, and it's just. It, it feels good to be back out there. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Be an awful lot of the other blokes in that field must have been very annoyed at the notion that you could take two years off and come down it, and they've been working like monkeys for that whole two years, doing whatever they can to stay in there, and then you just wander in and, and play well. So best of luck to you. Quickly on to Japan. You've been up there for a very long time. Two things I want to ask you about. First one, have you seen already evidence in the last week or two of a change in Japan since Hideki won the Masters last year. We all assumed from the outside that that would be a huge deal. Has that been the case? Have you noticed anything that sort of said, oh, it didn't used to be like that? Um, Well, I can't really comment on that at all because this first tournament we played, there were no spectators at the golf. Um, And so what I had noticed was that I'd hardly recognised any of the players. They seemed to be a lot younger than what I remember. Thought you'd walked into um, the crash. <laughs> yeah, and, like, there'd be the older blokes that would come up and, you know, say hi and nice to have me back and that type of thing. Um, but there's a big big percentage of the tour now that I've got no idea who they are. So, you know, I feel like I'm the, the new kid on the block because I don't know anyone out yeah, there. Yeah, that's, uh, that's bizarre. And what yeah. about culturally, Brendan? We know that Brad Kennedy packed up his whole family and moved to Japan um, for a couple of years. And, and what about the culture up there and what you've learnt from that, golf aside? That's a fascinating life experience to spend so much time in another country, and particularly not America or the UK, which are fairly recognisable to us. There's no cricket in Japan. There's no rugby league. There's no Aussie rules. It's a totally different place. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, when I first turned up here, uh, I think I was 20, <clears throat> 25 or 26, you know, I was clueless. And to some to some point I still am clueless, you know. I don't. I still don't speak the language. Um, you know, I've never really learnt the language. I understand if, if I'm listening to people, I can understand certain things. I've never, I don't understand the sentence structure as far as speaking it. Um, but, yeah, there are so many differences to Japan. But at the same time, 
you've got to embrace those differences. You've got to, you know, you've got to understand that things are done differently here. And and I think I've been successful because I've accepted all those things. You know, they are done differently, but um, you just go with the flow and, you know, it's it's a very easy place to be. You know, I love the the onsen culture that they have up here. So for me, every day I'll finish my golf and I'll go to the sauna and the spa and the cold bath and the hot bath. And, you know, that's my way of finishing my day, relaxing, you know, spending a couple of hours just, you know, putting into myself. And then the food up here is fantastic. The travel is so easy. Um, You know, so as far as being in a country that you don't understand the language, it is a very, very easy place to commute. Um, You know, you never have any issues with food. Um, People are friendly. It's a safe place. There's so many positives for it. Um, And I'll always point young good young players, you know, to try Japan. Japan. Well, of course, you were not a pioneer. We've had a lot of Australian players over the years have played and made good careers in Japan. It was probably a bit of a lull of that through the 90s. You kind of restarted it. A bunch of guys came to Japan after you sort of went up there and started to win and whatnot. That feels like it might have tailed off a bit again. Am I right about that? Japan's less of an option Um, for Australian players? Well, possibly. Um, You know, there's always always a handful of Mm. of new um, players that, either try to get through Q school or, or do get through. Um, I just think the the real good players these days aren't looking at Japan. No. They're looking at, um, what is it, the European Tour, which is the DP Tour, right? Call it the European Tour. We'll call the major the Dinosaur. We'll call it the European Tour. We're all blokes. Yeah, we can do what, what we want. Whatever they're calling it, <laughs> yeah. Europe or the US. The US and, yeah. You know, and if you are good, there's, you know, I've, I say go for it. Um, is Japan but, a good you know, place on the path to there? Is is Japan a good place to work on a game to take to America? Um, yeah, I, I think so. For the fact that it is different, it is different. You you know, going from Australia to the US, you, there's very few differences. Um, you know, you can <coughs> foods. You know, it's more fattening in the US, but yeah. you know, it's the same food. You know, we speak the same language. You know, there's not too many differences, but you come up here and you get out of your comfort zone and, and um, you know, you, you just experience new things, you know. And I just think that getting back to Greg Norman, you know, he was a worldly player. He played everywhere and, you know, and he dominated everywhere. So, you know, and I, and I take my hat off to guys like Lee Westwood who have travelled the world and played everywhere. Um, you know, and, and Lee's been a fantastic player for, you know, for the last 25 years. And and those that play all around the world just seem to be more in touch with reality than those that, you know, play in the US, you know, the, the Americans that play in the US that don't travel. It's a bubble, um, isn't it? It's a bubble and it'd be easy to find yourself in that bubble very comfortably. You can understand the 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 appeal of the bubble, can't you? What a wonderful place to live, but not yeah, necessarily life's healthy. Yeah, pretty simple on yeah. that tour, you know, <laughs> when everything's given to you and you're playing for astronomical amounts of money, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Back to the TPS quickly. I meant to ask you this earlier. How did you feel about the event? This interesting notion of women and men playing together, uh, how did that go? Did you play with any of the, the women in that event and how was that experience? Because you would, I imagine, would never have done that in a formal setting or certainly not for a very long time, if at all. And then the juniors come in there as well. What was your feeling about the whole – from the outside, it feels like a really feel-good, fun golf festival. What about for the players? Yeah. Um, look, I, I played with, I think, Kirsten Rudgley. Is that – Yeah, just finished finished seventh or eighth at the Augusta National Women's. Yeah, I played with Kirsten and, um, you know, I was impressed with her game, um, but she was the only um, – lady um that i played with um but yeah look i i think it's it's good i think australia needs to try these different things um you know it's a tough landscape professional golf in australia and if you've got a new product or a different product um you know i think it can get both you know the men and women out to watch um 
yeah, I, I think it was a good thing. Um, I did, as I said, I only played with Kirsten. I didn't play with anyone else. Um, was the vibe? So I didn't really. Yeah, was the vibe of the tournament any different to? Um, well, it was, it was so difficult because it was so wet, so wet all week. Yeah. But you know, um, you know, I didn't really see too many people out there apart from when we were playing. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, look, I, I think it was a good. I'd, I'd seen on TV um, a couple of the previous ones previous events um where yeah there's there was an interest there so i i think it's a good thing you would have played the vic open i assume at some point both the men's and women's fields but playing for separate trophies uh i haven't played you haven't been there right okay you should that's a real festival of golf that's my preferred format tough to do on a week-to-week basis in australia you can't just can't get the fields for the women it's not possible we don't have enough professional the one thing that I, i i did find a bit strange is that the, the men and women playing for one trophy yes i agree that they should be they can play in the same tournament but you've got to differentiate those events i think we are old because i feel a bit the same i just i'm not sure if they're yeah. ever i think they do as good a job as you can do of getting the t's about right to make the games somewhat fair and yeah. we see that in the you know we see quite a few women and they and they are good players don't for a moment be fooled that Hannah Green can't play the game as well as mm. an awful lot of people. But I just – I'm not sure you can ever overcome that completely. But I'm not sure you need to in every tournament either. A series of these TPS events where that's mm. the format, I think – it's not the Australian Open. Nobody's attaching the prestige of an Australian Open, and that doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile event. So I think the experiment has been really – I'm the first one to criticise people in the PGA for all sorts of things, but I think that's been a, a really good step yeah. forward. And I wonder, a lot of this stuff I think is generational. If you were 20, just starting out your career and playing in those events, I, I suspect you'd have a different mindset, not having been exposed to 20 years of golf being this way. Yeah, I agree. I agree. On that, do we play too much 72-hole stroke playing, which seems to be one of the other issues as an entertainment No, I, I don't think so. I think that's how you find the best player over a, over a four-day period. Um, you know, yes, Playing match play, it's a it's a fun event, but um, you know, I just it's like tennis, you know, like you get you get drawn, you, it's so much on the draw, you know, yeah. a random draw, you get you know number one plays, you know, a lowly ranked player, and you know that lowly ranked player could could win, you know, well, could, could beat the world number one. Could, same true in golf, happen very often. Same true in golf. Nick Ahern beat Tiger twice at the match play. You said you played Tiger yeah. at the match play, did you? Yeah, yeah. I, I played Tiger. He was, um, yeah, I, and I just went over for the for the holiday. Yeah. How'd that <laughs> um, go? <laughs> How was it? Oh, look, yeah, he got me three and two, um, which I wasn't disgraced. But um, yeah, look, it was. Did I think I was going there to win? No. Um, you know, once again, it was in the middle of my off season, and but I turned you, up. But and, shouldn't you be there? There'll be people all over the world listening to this, and they'll be just spitting their tear, thinking, "How could a professional golfer go to an event not thinking that they're there to win?" It's a, no, it's well, a given. You know, it's just no. You know, it was just <laughs> you know, could I win? Could I have won? Yes, I could have. But you know, once again, talking about being realistic and and um, things, you know, like. I'd, I was in the garden when I found out that I was actually in the tournament to play Tiger. So, you know, how's my preparation? And and this is the other thing that I find um, that a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, for, for these certain tournaments like this, when I'm in Australia and I'm flying over to the US to play one tournament, you know, it takes you four or five days to to get on the right time zone, you know, and that's where I've struggled when I've played majors in the past that, you know, I'm in Japan and next minute I'm playing a British Open and then you fly over there and your body clock's out and you just, you can't compete against the best players in the world on that sort of preparation. You need to give yourself a couple of weeks to get acclimatised, to get on the right time zone um, before you can really think about competing with the best. And, And that's what I thought about with Tiger, you know, like, here I am, I get to play with the greatest player of almost all time and I'm getting paid 40 grand to turn up and, <laughs> do, and it. do it. So, you know. Who's saying no to that? that? Was, that's what I thought about. I thought, wow, I'm getting paid to go and play with Tiger. How good's this? Did you enjoy it? Nobody enjoys getting beaten, obviously, but did you enjoy it? Oh, look, it was it was a wonderful experience for me. Um, you know, 
I didn't feel any love out there in front of the, <laughs> the US crowds with right. Tiger coming back from his knee surgery. So, look, I knew that I was just the part actor in the whole in the whole thing, and you know, I was happy with that. You know, I've played that the world match play three times, and I've played Tiger, Phil, and Adam Scott. Right. So, you know, the three. You know, I've known Adam. I know Adam quite well, so that was fun. Um, and Phil, you know, he was he was fantastic the day that um, I met him. And once again, it was just nice to be up, you know, living in their world for four and a half hours. Yeah. Actually quite an achievement to get to the top 64 in the world from Japan, isn't it? You've really got to play well in Japan yeah. to get enough world yeah, points been to some, get there. some good years of golf, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so for people who aren't sure, it's not that easy. You very rarely see people from the Japan Tour make it there. You've said you're 47, Brendan. What's the future? Oh, I think we've come to that point of the conversation. Where are you now? Where, um, are you, where are you going? I mean, I imagine the US Champions Tour is not at the front of your thing. You're not a Peter Senior type. You're not going to go over there and spend a bunch of time queue yeah. schooling and Monday queuing. It's probably the hardest tour in the world to get on, apart from maybe the Japan Ladies Tour. What will you do? What's uh... Well, look, back when I first turned pro, I had the ambition to be retired by 40. Right. Well, I'm 47 and I'm still going. Um, I said I'd never play seniors golf. But, uh, you know, <laughs> As each year than, creeps closer, does that maybe? Yeah, it's less than it three <laughs> years away now. And, um, you know, there's there's a possibility. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a huge goal of mine. Um, but, look, if my game is still competitive when I'm 50 and I'm, and I'm enjoying it, you know, and, and I think the two years I've just had away from golf has maybe increased my longevity in the, in the game because, you know, I do feel fresh in, again and I still – and I, I feel that, you know, I've, I'm enjoying it again. And so, you know, and that's the one thing – for me, that I'll find very easy. If I'm no longer competitive, it'll be easy to finish up. It'll be easy to walk away. But if I'm still competitive and, you know, I'm still enjoying it, then I won't say that I will never play seniors golf. But, um, yeah, it doesn't seem that long ago I was a young up-and-comer and here I am, not far off seniors golf. No, I, I remember when you were up and coming too. I was a younger mm. well. more likely to see a Ute with B Jones and Sons landscaping on it, perhaps than a, <laughs> than a tour bag with uh, Brendan Jones, Champions Tour player. Yeah, you interested in business? Does that does that interest you? Being a business person, yeah, having a business? there's a possibility. You know, like who knows where it's going to go? But the one thing that I do know is that something will happen. Um, you know, just like this last year. You know, I just went and helped a mate and loved it. So, you know, I can try different things at 50. Um, but, yeah, I'm not worried now about what the future does hold. If it's not – if the golf's not there, I'm not I'm not Maybe. too concerned about it. Fabulous stuff. Well, mate, it's been great to catch up and hear some of that. Great to hear that you're refreshed and raring to go. Well, what's your results in Japan for the rest of the year? You might surprise a few with that attitude by the sound of it. Been great to catch up. Look forward to seeing you back here, hopefully towards the end of the year, maybe playing a bit of tournament golf in Australia, which I know is difficult yeah. when you're in Japan, but it would be great if we could. Yeah, good on you, Rod. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. I've known Brendan since way back when he won that Australian amateur in 1999, and I can tell you he has not changed a bit over all that time. Still one of the game's most genuine people, and as his recent play proves, still has plenty of game. Well, that's it for episode 64, but on our next, we shift gears a bit when John Huggan catches up with one of the most recognisable voices in the game. But I don't watch week to week anymore. It's unwatchable for me. It's the, the commentary, the everything is just, it's just, it's just uh, state-run television as far as I'm concerned. And, and so I, I don't like it. That's Peter Costas next time on The Thing About Golf. <laughs>